Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, we are continuing our conversation with E.R. Bills, author of Texas Oblivion, Mysterious Disappearances, Escapes, and Cover-Ups, published by the History Press. Let's jump back in. And thanks, as always, for joining us on this summer series on Great Escapes. E.R., welcome back to Crime Capsule. We are just so tickled to have you. Thanks for having me on, Benjamin. So last week, we took a look at a few different cases from around Texas where folks just went on the lam, they up and disappeared, or in some cases, they got disappeared themselves. Uh, we are going to just jump right back in and take a look at a few more of the cases from Texas Oblivion, which is uh, your book, which has just very recently been published. But this week, I want to I want to take a look at a few cases that folks outside of Texas may not have heard of. The, the sort of slightly more uh, locally weird cases are the ones that don't necessarily even travel outside their counties in some instances. So let's start with Milton Sims, the pilot. This is a weird one. 1978, and you open the scene with a plane found in a hangar at Texas City. What kind of plane are we talking about, and what was so unusual about this discovery? Well, it was some kind of Cessna, um, you know, for for short-range flights, um, as I recall, or variation of a Cessna. Not a big plane, you know, maybe maybe six to six-seater, you know, something like that. Um, and I've been on some of those. In fact, I. At one point, I think it was 96, I flew over the Nazca Lines in Peru. You know, the mm, big animal figures in the desert Absolutely. that you can only see from the sky. Yeah. And I remember every time we would pass over it, I had hitched a ride with some Japanese tourists. And uh, um, every time you went over, you, you made a pass over one of the, everybody would want a picture. So everybody on one side of the plane, the pilot would flip the Cessna sideways. Whew. We're strapped in pretty well. And everybody on that side could take a picture, and then he would flip it back the other way and go back over it to the other side of the plane. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm not a huge fan of the smaller planes. I hear you. Did you lose your lunch on that trip? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did turn green. Uh, but anyway, um, so this was a smaller plane, uh, and uh, it, it was. It was found in this hangar, uh, and they didn't know what to make of it first, but there was a bullet hole in the roof. And I think some uh, markings, some identifying markings had been marked out. And uh, so eventually they put out a, you know, bolo and, and uh, you know, trying to get more information. And they found out that it was leased. There was a company that leased, uh, or sorry, had, had the plane for, uh, you know, short flights for people you could hire. Uh, how people could hire a company to take them on short flights. So, so this guy, Milton Sims, had been contacted and the person he was going to transport's name was Michael Jackson and they had paid cash and and so he transported this person and uh, I think he took him to oh gosh uh, someplace north of Houston um, I don't I don't remember exactly the town and then he was supposed to pick him the next day um, and so he left to pick him the next day and then he disappeared you know, they, they lost track of them, radio silence. Um, 
and they never recovered the body. They never recovered anything. But in the meantime, the plane, after it supposedly picked up Michael Jackson, makes an appearance in three or four different communities around Texas, you know, farther north and then right at the coast and then goes somewhere after that and then shows up eventually back in this hangar. And they find, uh, you know, seats that have been torn out of the back down the road from the hangar and they find uh, empty gas, you know, canisters, jugs, whatever. Uh, and they, uh, they realize that, uh, I think they found uh, marijuana residue or, or something like that in the, tra- in the plane. So they realized that somebody used to make drug runs. The thing that was fascinating to me about this story was, again, it was no, another one I've never heard of. But the thing that really fascinated me was, was and disturbed me was the fact that there was like no follow up. You know, the plane shows up in the hangar and they, they get the very, they don't get hardly anywhere on the investigation because there's no body. Um, and it landed at two or three different, uh, you know, small airfields. And so there's a jurisdiction issue maybe, but nothing was done. Nothing gets determined. And so he disappears and outside of a friend or two, they may have met, even though they never list any friends by name, it said, oh, he was a good guy or this, that, and the other. The plane, dis- or, sorry, the, uh, the, the pilot disappears and there's very little done about it afterwards. And there's very little mention of it afterwards. You know, this really, of of all the cases in your book, and I should say there are 20 cases in your book, there is a real smorgasbord, you know, to choose from, of all of them, uh, from the funny to the grisly to, you know, the sort of this just plain weird, this one struck me as uniquely suited for a Cormac McCarthy novel. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, there's there's something that happened here and everybody is just left to try to piece together the aftermath and the, the consequences and to see those those implications um, play out. I, I, I did want to ask you, ER, aviation, I am not a pilot. I enjoy riding on planes, but don't put me at the stick, you know. <laughs> uh, it'll get real squirrely real right. fast. Um, but I, I am aware that aviation is in general, a highly regulated field. Uh, I mean, movements are tracked and, you know, you have to check in and there's laws regarding airspace about, you know, you have to broadcast, you know, where you are and bearings and things like that. What was it like, this case is almost 50 years old now, but as you were doing the research on it, what was it like trying to track ownership or flight logs or air traffic reports the evidence of the movement of this aircraft around Texas. Uh, What was it like working with material that was in some cases four or five decades old and trying to do the work of the investigators yourself? Well, it's like a lot of investigations, a lot of police work, a lot of PI work. A lot of it's guesswork and a lot of it's just it's just elbow grease. You know, you keep digging in, you keep looking, you reference this, you reference that, you try to cross-reference things, and then you realize there's a disappearance or there's a crime, whatever. That that in itself is something you're investigating. But for me, this story, this story in particular was about the phenomena of disappearance in terms of the investigation. There just wasn't anything. It doesn't look like, okay, so, you know, you, you read these books, 
you know, even Cormac McCarthy stuff, No Country for Old Men, you know, Tommy Lee Jones's character, he's he's still trying to figure it out, you know, and and I remember that I love that quote about signs and wonders. Um, this guy disappears, and it doesn't look like there's no clear trail that there's serious investigation. Now it's open. It's still technically an open uh, case, so you can't examine the police documents. There doesn't seem to have been a PI haven't, uh, hired by anybody <laughs> related to Milton Sims. None of the police, they say, well, you know, this or that. It's, it's you know, there's different jurisdictions, different. It landed here, it landed there. It, it almost looked like maybe not a coordinated effort not to do anything, but whether it was coordinated or not, nothing was done. This guy disappears. And then they basically discovered the plane was used to transport drugs at a time when the drug trade and the drug traffic across the Texas coast was incredibly, it was huge. And so there, there had been a crackdown and a ship had been seized in one of the harbors with tons and tons of drugs on it. And so you can imagine, I mean, I wasn't, an economics major either, but I remember, you know, talking about supply and demand. And so all of a sudden, if they need to get product here because of the demand, what links would, would a criminal organization go to? And then, and then there's the flip side. If there are people involved investigating these criminal enterprises and they were trying to turn a witness, you know, what might they excuse for, for a testimony? against one of these criminal organizations. To me, I mean, it's one of those that just takes off. Why Why wasn't there a serious investigation? Why weren't there more relatives coming forward asking about this? Because I still don't know. And why weren't there more friends? You know, I, I don't, you know, because we're just, there's just nothing there. It's it's like two newspaper articles, maybe. Maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe five in the end. But at the time, it was hard. To, it's like nobody really wanted to talk about it then. Nobody talks about it today. This guy was still a human being, and it sounds like he was a pretty decent guy. And so, did some? They drop him off over the ocean, or I mean, I don't know um, because they did. Somebody did fly down to the coast either to pick up or drop off, and something's happened here. And you're right. There's there's probably a novel in it. There's no telling how many different directions you could go. But the point is, nobody went anywhere with it. Not the police. Not the you know. Not the FBI. Not the FAA. Um, and why, who, who, again, I hate to use the, you know, allude to the wall of kingdom, you know, sometimes agencies circle ranks and, and, or wagon, sorry. And so nothing was done. And this guy was another just average Joe kind of guy, it seems like, and nobody that nobody still seems to have missed, missed today. And so what happened? I have no idea. It's another one of those. It was a chapter. I didn't have time. I actually had, in one of these cases, I had a parent of someone who disappeared that I wrote about call me and say, why didn't they talk to them? Or why didn't I talk to them? I mean, I, I tried to talk to as many people as I could. And they said, well, you talked to this person and that person, but you didn't talk to me. There's not enough time to talk to everybody unless you give it like a book treatment. This guy, I'm not sure you could get a book out of it unless it was a fiction, a fictional treatment, because... Who knows uh, what happened to him? And it's it's a, another strange anomaly. And it makes you, you know, I'm not conspiracy minded necessarily. But to me, the lack of investigation was the story, not the investigation. 
even more than the disappearance. The disappearance of the investigation is what kind of blew my mind. I was like, well, that, that doesn't track. This stuff happens and people research it and or try to figure it out. Or family members, poke. there was never even missing family, you know, still missing, you know, Milton Sim. There was nothing. And that is very strange. It, it did strike me in your account, you know, Sims comes across the pilot, you know, he comes across as this kind of uniquely serious and sober guy. He was not prone to wild, unpredictable maneuvers. He does not sound like he led these secret lives that folks who didn't know him called him a straight arrow, right? And it's sort of, he got co-opted somehow, and we can only speculate, was it at gunpoint? You know, was he actually entangled in something that nobody else knew about? I mean, there's just, it's all speculation, and that's what is so captivating and infuriating at once. Yeah, you know, and I've, so I've listed all these possibilities of conspiracy, or did he actually get approached? Well, I don't know why he would abandon the plane, but, you know, you could see a scenario where someone could take an opportunity to start transporting drugs to make a lot more money than transporting Michael Jackson for $400. The plane winds up back or in this hangar, and he's missing, and it's it's an enigma. It's, it's very strange, and uh, it's just not how things usually go uh, in terms of investigations and even official reports. Well, you never know what might come out of the woodwork in days to come with the publication of your book. It sounds to me that somebody else made a great escape and they used him to do it. And, you know, I hate I hate the thought that this innocent guy would have been, you know, caught up in all of that, but um, it does happen. Let's travel over to Denton, Texas, to the home of Hazel Carpenter and her daughter, uh, Virginia. We are going to dial the clock back a little bit to the late 1940s here. Let me, let me stop you yeah. there, though. Let me stop yeah. you right there. Okay. First of all, yesterday was the 74th anniversary of her disappearance, June oh, wow. 1st. Okay. Second of all, the mother, Hazel, lived in Texarkana. They were from Texarkana. And basically, uh, Virginia winds up going back to school at Texas Women's University. It was called something else back then. Um, North Texas Women's College, but in Denton. And so thank you. The thing, the thing that I think investigators, sorry, I'm not speaking in a turn, hopefully, but um, some of these I do vaguely remember, but <laughs> um, that one, that one was strange. So if you have, if you have someone that's in some way related to another horrific crime spree, sometimes the authorities don't see the forest for the trees, you know? Um, and so the interesting thing on the face of it was that, that, uh, Virginia Carpenter and mother Hazel, they knew all, they knew three of the victims of the phantom killer in Texarkana, which was a different kind of crime spree. You remember the movie, the town that dreaded sundown. All yeah. That. And our listeners, uh, for our listeners who are not aware of this is a very, very high profile, um, series of murders that took place in this yes. area. And one of the, really interesting crossovers between your case of Virginia Carpenter and this particular instance. It's, it kind of came out of the blue almost. You know, as I was reading your book, I thought, my goodness, you know, here we have for all the true crime junkies out there, you know, this is just catnip, right? It's like we've got one crime which may or may not right. be embedded into another extremely famous 
uh, crime. So just tell, but before we get to the um, to the Moonlight murders, uh, for folks who aren't aware, just give us a quick rundown of who Virginia was and what she was doing at the time, and and what happened to her, and then we'll come to the the overlap right with this other high profile. Yeah, there's been a few things written about her disappearance, but in this case. At the end, obviously, you've read the chapter. I uncovered some stuff that nobody had really talked about. I mean, it, it seems like this case might have been solved. You know, it, it's impossible to prove now, but it seems like it might have been solved, and I felt pretty good about some of the stuff I just stumbled onto practically accidentally. But um, she was a young woman. Um, I think she had gone off to North Texas Women's College, Texas Women's University now. Uh, for a while and then came back home. Her mother was ill. Hazel was ill. And so she was home for a while, worked for an insurance company, this, that, and the other. And then she decided to go back. So she took a train. She met another older woman on the train who was going to attend studies at what is now called Texas Women University. They wind up at the train station there in Denton and they need a ride to the dorm. Now, they they get a taxi and, and they get in the taxi and they go to their dorm and uh, or they arrange transport. And then Virginia realizes she's left some of her luggage at the station. Uh, so the taxi driver, real polite, amicable guy, uh, says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take you back there to get it. It's no big deal. And the woman that's with her says, I'll go with you. She says, no, don't worry about it. You know, uh, Virginia says, go on. I'll be fine. Because the taxi driver seems like a real sweetheart. So, she leaves. That, that's where you hear the. That's where the dun dun dun. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Winds up back at the train station, and supposedly. Uh, but uh, and so then, then, then there's there's the disappearance. The next morning they find they find some of her luggage out on the lawn in front of the dorm she was going to stay in, and uh, the taxi driver. They talk to him, and he says, "Well, these two boys and this." In this, you know, tan beige yellow car, would stop talking to her when I dropped her off, and and so the police pursue that. They pursue this this car and these two guys. They never find them. Um, you know, they contact the mother. She hasn't received a call. The ex boyfriend checks in. Um, they look at him. He's not, you know, he has an alibi and he's not involved. He was calling to check on her, and so she just completely disappears, and nobody knows what's happened. And uh, they take a run at the taxi driver. And uh, do you remember his name? <laughs> oh, I do indeed, Mister Edgar Ray Zachary. Oh yeah, thank what you. A, thank you. You got have, you got to love those alleged murderers with three names. We got we had right, Edgar Ray right. Killen in Mississippi, who definitely uh, you know uh, was responsible for some of the civil rights murders of the '60s. But whenever I see an Edgar Ray, I just kind of I tense up a little bit. <laughs> And ER stands for Eddie Ray, by the way, but um, <laughs> my, my real name. But um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Zachary, you know, he checks out. His wife gives him an alibi. He was home at this hour or whatever. And so it's the end of the story. And in most discussions of, of, of this disappearance, that is the end of the story. Nobody really picks up. Oh, well. Okay, well, then, yes, you're right. The midnight murders come into play. People say, well, they she knew three of the victims, you know, her and Hazel and blah, blah, blah. And so the police check that out. Of course, they never found that murder, even in Texarkana. So, obviously, 
true to form. They, if it was him, they didn't find him in Denton. The thing is, basically, the story kind of ends there. But then I just kept digging. I kept thinking, this is this is there's there's something strange about this. And I, I found some more recent stories about where they had dug up some dams around ponds and stuff, trying to find the remains or where they where this young woman's remains might be. I don't get anywhere. But I start, you know, with the the fancy internet machine stuff that people tried to do in terms of research fifty years ago or thirty years ago when I was in college. It's really really tough. But you can t- type names into a, you know, the your computer machine, the search engines, sure. and stuff just comes, comes up. That comes up. And you literally, and you have to just pour through it, whatever link you can. And so I started doing that, and basically this Zachary guy pops up again about ten years mm. later, and and he pops up in a very strange way. He is accused of assaulting this woman, and and tying her up and putting her in the floorboard and all this crazy stuff and then taking her off and Oof, trying to some some Edgar Allan Poe kind of stuff, yeah, right? He, <laughs> I mean different yeah. Edgar, but same macabre. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so he gets accused of this. Um and uh and supposedly he after he does all this, he drives her off and then he he's sitting there talking to her and breaks down in tears and and then he lets her go and says, don't go to the local police, go to the police out of town, which I, which is very strange. The Dallas police go out of town. So she goes out of town. She reports this guy and the people from Denton, the authorities from Denton come down and and uh, basically it looks like they've got him. I mean, he's he's committed this crime. He doesn't kill her and he doesn't assault her in the end. You know, He ties her up and all this stuff, but he lets her go. Is it conscience? Is it concern? I don't know. But he... Uh, he lets her go and she goes to the farmer's branch, I think, police department, and uh, and reports this. <clears throat> and so it looks like, you know, well, we've all, well, so the older of us have seen Perry Mason, the younger of us have seen, I don't know, Law and Order or whatever. I mean, this is damning evidence. This is a damning C- CSI, I think, for yeah, the younger CSI. kids. Yeah. <laughs> right, and so right. this guy, he's, you know, they, they kind of got him, I think, at that point. But what happens is, is that, and it's, you know, again, I don't want to be political, but obviously today there's sort of an assault on on some aspects of women's rights, especially here in Texas. And, uh, and back then, there was no assault on it because they hardly existed. You know, uh, the women had started going to the workplace, you know, in the 50s, but not a whole lot yet, okay? Um, and so they didn't have positions of power and they didn't have, well, obviously they weren't paid as much as the men. They didn't have much standing. And so she's involved with an aircraft, sorry, an aerospace uh, company, a big firm. And she, this, this young lady realizes, and she's got kids. She realizes if I come forward with this accusation, um, I could lose my job. I could lose my job. You know, he's not working there, but just the 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 taint, the stain, the f- and the of, fear of retaliation for yeah, a woman. Totally, yeah. In the fifties, they didn't have rights, and people don't realize women couldn't even have their own credit cards till seventy three. They couldn't even say, oh, t- "Oh, oh, honey, I have a headache tonight." I mean, spousal rape was legal basically till ninety three, nineteen ninety three. You know, I mean, insane stuff. So, so anyway, she decides. She doesn't want to pursue it and she won't testify. So this guy walks 
<clears throat> and of course, his wife later uh, says the alibi, she, she just gave it at his request that it was not true, that he didn't show up at 10 a.m. or whatever the time was when they investigated Virginia Carpenter's murder, but basically that he showed up around 2 a.m. So it's like, it's solved. Where were those four hours, right? What was he doing? Yeah, yeah you think this is pretty much solved. But anyway, it's never revisited after that um, because she wouldn't testify because that's not the kind of thing that women were trying to make it in the workplace back then wanted to be associated with. And, and, you know, Edgar Zachary basically probably got away with murder. Now, you're right. At the time when they were fishing and before this, you know, uh, incident 10 years later, they were looking at her, her possible connection or the possibility of her being uh, a final victim of the Phantom Killer of the Moonlight Murders in Texacana, which is also a crazy story. But um but I don't really think there's anything to that. And, you know, the difference, and I, I like Rick talking about this one after Milton Sims, because in a lot of these disappearances, you know, you're not getting very far. You're not finding a lot of evidence. But there are family members or friends who are, like, harassing and badgering the, the local authorities. What have you found out? And in this case, right, they take Carpenter, it on themselves. They say, look, if y'all aren't going to yeah. do the job, we will. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Yes. And so Hazel, Hazel Carpenter moves from Texarkana, you know, out here to the Metroplex and she stays after these people and she gets letters from people saying this and that. If they pay her, they'll tell her what happened, you know, and, 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 and she remarries and, and stuff. And, but she, she keeps uh, her sort of thumb to the pulse of the investigation and that helped, which again, to me, you know, that, that's why the Milton Sims thing was so odd. I was like, nobody has their thumb to the pulse of the investigation of this guy's disappearance. Nobody seemed to, there didn't seem to be that kind of anybody in his life that cared, like Hazel Carpenter um, or uh, some of the other cases in the book where the, the relatives were distraught, the friends were distraught, and they just, they, they drove all over the state and the neighboring states posting missing person signs with the pictures of their loved one or their friend. In this case, you know, they did that for, you know, Virginia Carpenter got that kind of attention, but Milton didn't. Anyway, they still think, uh, I think they still think it was probably Edgar um, Zachary, um, or they may, may may think it after my book came out. I don't know, but uh, um, they're still looking in one form or fashion for her remains, and it's, it's one of those crazy unsolved mysteries that, again, took on a lot of its own. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
I was intrigued by this chapter, uh, like one or two others in the book, actually uh, had kind of a surprise cameo appearance, um, not by another mass murderer, you know, the moonlight, <laughs> the moonlight guy, but but actually, uh, ER, I was interested to see the role that the Texas Rangers actually play in this particular case. They make an entry um, in order to investigate her disappearance. And I was just wondering, for our listeners who are who are not familiar with the actual Texas Rangers as opposed to the Chuck Norris variety, um, would you just would you help? Oh, hey, well, I, I watched my TV when I was a kid, you know. Um, but you know, would you just help us to understand the role that they play structurally in investigating these crimes? I mean, they're not local police; they are they're state police of a sort. They reminded me a little bit of almost like. We had a we had a member of the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division SLED, which is sort of a you know para state entity, like an autonomous entity out in South Carolina. Um, it, it's a really unusual structure, and could you just help us to kind of fit it into how how that works in law enforcement or investigation in Texas? That's a good question, Benjamin. I haven't I haven't thought about that a lot, but I think like okay, so. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to get pop culture reference here on you. Um, here, while back, here while back, there was a series on, uh, well, there was a series called True, De- uh, yeah. True Detective yep. with Matthew McConaughey. Great stuff. And uh, Okay, and they're both, yeah, it's a really incredible series. Um, and uh, Woody Harrelson. But anyway, they have a state police. They have a state police investigation. And I'm... I don't know exactly. I don't. I don't. I haven't had enough run-ins with the law, <laughs> but I don't think we have sort of official state police. I think what we have is Texas Rangers, which is sort of, you know, they they call it something different in Louisiana. Everybody has, or a lot of states have different things. During the Reconstruction era, during, sorry, during the Reconstruction era after Civil War, we had a state police for three or four years, not very long, but. Uh, the Texas Rangers are sort of like our state police, but they aren't necessarily directly affiliated with any of our local uh, civic or city police departments or the sheriff's departments. So that's that's just what it is. And Texas Rangers certainly has more glamorous, glamorous uh, nomenclature involved. And actually, one of my old rugby teammates was played a thug in Walker, Texas Ranger, and he always got beat up by Chuck. And this, so you might. Well, hey, talk about a claim to fame, getting your ass kicked by Chuck Norris. Yeah, he's I mean, also, come on. He was also a redheaded character, redheaded dude. But he uh, he also wound up playing on, you mentioned earlier, Friday Night Lights. He was the opposing coach whose wife dies of cancer. He had a recurring appearance on that. So one of my old rugby teammates, he, he's had sort of a minor career in Hollywood, and I'm a big fan. But anyway, this guy from the Texas Rangers, his name is uh, Lewis Rigler, and uh, he happened to be uh, early on the job with the Texas Rangers when Virginia Carpenter disappeared and followed the case for many, many years. Did you have any last thoughts on Carpenter for us? No, I mean, it's, uh, it's something that's still, I think, a, Members of the community are aware of it up there in Denton. They're, they're still disturbed by it. 
and maybe more disturbed than fascinated. Uh, some communities, they become fascinated. It becomes a thing like the Black Dahlia or something that becomes mythic. I think it's disturbing to folks more there than it's it's something that's mythically tragic and uh, and it's unsolved. So ER, here on Crime Capsule, we like to talk about aftermaths of cases that we uh, that we explore with our authors. But in Texas Oblivion, there are very few aftermaths or epilogues or nice, neat uh, stories with bows, you know, tied up on top of them. What I wanted to ask you about instead was uh, a little bit about your methods and about your sources. Um, our last guest was Tobin Gilman uh, out in California, um, who in our series on Great Escapes, he studied the, the disappearance of a guy named James Dunham, who killed his entire family and took off in the Santa Clara Valley, never to be seen again. Sightings of Dunham popped up for years, uh, even as sort of hard evidence and good material began to dry up over time. I want to ask you the same question that I asked Tobin, which is, what do you do when those leads start to run out, when you as a researcher are faced with the same questions as the investigators, and there's just, there's just no water left in the well anymore? What do you do in that case? Um, well, this is going to sound strange, maybe, um, but I better preface it with asking you a question. Is the Chandler Islands part of Mississippi? The, there are, we have four main islands off the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Yes, the Chandeliers. Um, we call, well, excuse me, we call them the Barrier Islands, and Chandelier is one of them. The but if I remember correctly, and I'm going to have to pull out my, my, uh, my map <laughs> of the Gulf Coast. No, that's all right. There, there's... That's where the BP oil spill first. Deepwater Horizon, yeah, off the Barrier Islands. Uh, a little further, yeah. I think it's about 60 miles out in the Gulf, maybe 100 miles out in the Gulf. But, yeah, why do you ask? The, okay, so so here's the thing. So um, the company that I kind of worked for for a long time, they used to uh, they used to go on uh, for, the, for the employees' fishing trips, and they would charter a 110-foot boat out of Biloxi, and we would drive down from here, and we would – be at the casino that night and then get on the boat at 12 and then go out. So these 110 foot boats had eight 13 foot skiffs on them. And so you get out the next morning and you're hungover or not, and you go fishing. And I've probably done this with, uh, with people that I knew some family members for, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 times over 15 or 16 years. And in 2008, the last time that I went, um, the buddy that I was going to fish with was too hungover to go out. So I went out myself uh, in the boat by myself and I had a hand radio that was supposed to be, that was connected to the boat and we had a frequency 69. Of course, fishermen have vivid imaginations, <laughs> but uh, we went out and, uh, or I went out by myself and uh, I was trying to get to one of the islands and find some of the other guys I was fishing with. I have to make a confession. I'm sort of a snot nosed college guy. And a lot of these guys were older hands, you know, who work more with their hands. And, and, uh, it was, I was kind of like a, you know, an easy target for jokes about being soft or whatever, you know, like I said, I'm an old rugby player and all that. But, um, anyway, uh, I, I couldn't reach anybody on the radio. And so it's, it starts to rain, a storm blows up, the waves get bigger and I can't, I'm going to try to 
keep this brief, but I can't reach anybody on the handheld. I'm like hitting 69, you know, hello, you know, Ron, you know, come in, this is Eddie or ER, whatever. Where were you guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuff like that. I can't find them. And, you know, and also I can't even see the islands, you know, in the boat. You know, the weather was bad, but I didn't. So basically I become, I guess, disoriented or maybe the waves were too big. But I, as I'm going in, I'm going against the waves. The waves, I'm just hitting them in the boat. I'm in the back of it, and it's boom, boom, boom. And at that point, I think, I can't see the islands. I can't reach anybody. I'm turning back. I turn back. I can barely see the boat. Or actually, it was right after the boat disappeared. <coughs> I could barely see it, and then it disappeared, and I thought, I know where it is. I'm just going to go back. But when I turned around, I'm sitting in the back of this boat, and now the waves, which are considerable, they're coming into the back of the boat. And so, in short order, the motor fouls, and, and there I am. And so I stand up in the back of the boat and I start trying to crank the engine, you know, the, oh, back, yeah. the sure, motor sure. back yeah, you up. got your outboard going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The boat, the wrong wave hits, the boat capsizes. So I'm in the water. I don't even have a lock reserve. Okay. <laughs> I see the radio floats. The, the fishing gear is gone. It's floating away, sinking. There's a cooler. And I think, should I grab the cooler or the radio? And I, I go and grab the radio. And so the boat's turned over. I grab the radio. And I, I don't have a lot. So there's a sheet, seat, seat cushion that floats. So I grab it. And I get back on the hole of this boat, right? <laughs> and I start trying to continue to reach people on this, this dead gum radio. And I can't on 69. I try other channels. I can't. Um, and I never reach anybody. And at the first, at first, I think, damn, I'm going to miss lunch <laughs> or something like that. You know, right. it's early and I'm like, this is, this sucks. I'm going to miss lunch. And so, and so, uh, it's just an inconvenience, but four or five hours in, you know, after getting up on the whole the, the boat on my knees, you know, with my glasses and, and, and the uh, seat cushion on one hand of the radio and looking around and getting hit by a wave and getting knocked off and climbing back on, I'm, vomiting i'm experiencing i have diarrhea i mean i've swallowed seawater so i'm in trouble and i think oh crap um anyway to make a long story short about 11 or 12 hours in you know uh well let me take that back about eight or nine or ten hours in i'm like whoa this i don't see anybody i can't see anybody around me i can't reach anybody i'm worried and uh and so I start taking this dumb radio and I start hitting the seat button. And if it stops anywhere and it's not stopping, but if it does, I'll say Mayday, Mayday SOS. And so that business is going on. This goes on for like 30 minutes and I'm down to like two bars on this radio. And uh, I did this for like 30 minutes. And then finally someone answers and it's the U.S. Coast Guard out of Pensacola, which I don't know what my signal instead of the U.S. Coast Guard in New Orleans or wherever else Pensacola gets my signal, and they're they're like, Captain, Captain, how many survivors are oh, there? Man. And yeah. I'm like, and I'm like, and I think, I think, holy crap, they're not going to come get. I'm just one idiot out of here. <laughs> but I, I don't lie. Well, say, but they will come get you. My dad was Coast Guard Auxiliary, and they will come and get exactly, you. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I said, listen, I'm the only, I'm the only one on the boat. There were no other people on the boat, and I'm here, and I, and so they. They, they try to get my bearings, tell me where I think I am, or tell them I try to tell them where I think I am. And so they're searching for me. Okay, so like two or three hours later, okay, 
they they're they've got two helicopters out supposedly. They have no idea where I'm at. I can't see them. It, the waves are like ten feet, ten foot by then. The guys have heard by then that I've my boat is capsized and I'm gone. So that's very disturbing to these people that knew me. But they're on the boat, 110 foot boat, it's in 10 foot way as a raging sea, and they're throwing up stuffs flying all over the boat. They're sick, and meanwhile I'm still live out on the. So make a long story short, eventually the Coast Guard, they I see the plane, I'm down to like one bar, I'm mm-hmm. freaking out, and they fly right over me. They can't see me. The white caps are, you know, they can't mm. see me. I'm like, you guys just went over me. So if you're, you know, if your relative was involved with the Coast Guard auxiliary or whatever, I mean, they it was the whole thing, like the Guardian with Ashley Kushner and Kevin Costner. The helicopter, they spot me finally. The diver drops out and he swims over. And he says, okay, I want you to slide into the water. And I'm like, what do you mean? I've been here all day. He's like, no, just slide in. Well, I didn't realize I was completely hypothermic. My lips were blue. I was in bad shape. It was like October. Anyway, so I get rescued. They take me to the the Coast Guard there in in, uh, New Orleans. They get me an ambulance. They can't find a vein because the blood has started retreating to my internal organs. I mean, I almost died yes, out there. Yes. You were talking about the, the 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 bayou and the alligator or the crocs. You know, the pilot joked about that. He said, "You know, another hour or so, you'd devote you'd have floated in the Louisiana swamps, and you probably could have walked out if you could avoid the alligators." You know, which was, wow. was kind of funny. But um, anyway, the point funnier is, now than it was at the time, right? <laughs> yeah. The point is, I almost disappeared. I was almost one of these people that disappeared, and and. You know, in most of these cases, human, you know, there was there was human interference and criminality. But in this case, I was amazed at uh, the indifference sort of the ocean of nature. You know, I was so far outside of my security zone. People don't realize you can wind up places and maybe some of these victims did where, it, you know, you think people care or there are people at a red light or in the car over somebody will help. But you can get in a situation where there's nobody to help. And you can just disappear, and nobody nobody knows. And so, so I I really got lucky, um, and uh, and really it wasn't too long after that that I started really sort of pursuing writing more seriously. And of course, the subjects in this book appealed to me sort of in a way because of that, because I literally was almost <laughs> lost in oblivion. <laughs> you know, to force it's just it's gotta hit home every yeah. single time you write about one of these. It's gotta hit home for you. Good lord. And so when I think about when I hit uh, when you mentioned, uh, and I'm I'm sure you're now that you know that story. If you if you if you rephrased it, you would say pardon the pun. But what do you do? Do you go back to you know to the well? Uh, you know what? In some situations, that is exactly what I try to do. Uh, in Virginia Carpenter's case and uh, Kelly Wilson's case out in East Texas, I I, I drive I'll drive back out there. And I'll just I'll, I'll try to look at some of the information I have on some of the locations where the video store was located, maybe in Kelly Wilson's case, or or TWU, or drive around the surrounding areas at the tanks, at the landforms, and try to get a sense of the vibe, um, if there is such a thing, but just a sense of the landscape. And then I think in some cases, if I, if I was a person who disappeared myself, how would I try to do it? How would I try to achieve it? What what around me would help me? Or if I was a person that was trapped somewhere, um, 
you know, I just try to place myself, which it's, it's, it's not exactly method acting or anything, but it's like go back to the scene sort of of the crime and, and place yourself there and try to put yourself in the position of the victim and not just the victim, but maybe the perpetrator. What would you do? How would you dispose of this body? How would you or how would you try to get out of this if you were in the floorboard of a car, you know, to, or, or you were suddenly uh, bound and gagged in the back of a plane? Um, what would your last thoughts be? I mean, we we sure we see lots of this stuff and live vicariously through this stuff on TV, but I'm sure it's something completely different when it's actually happening. And since it sort of happened, not in terms of any kind of criminality to me, there are lots of things that go through your head, you know, like, should I have grabbed the cooler, <laughs> you know, or should I, have, you know, um, and, uh, and so sometimes it doesn't do any good. You're just driving around and the place has become too developed or overrun, or in the case of Wichita Falls, uh, the Andy Sims kid who disappeared, you drive out there and you try to find some of the places they last said they saw him, some caves, some this, some that, and you just go there and try to artificially possibly create some context. I mean, yes, some of the landmarks are still there, but, and sometimes it, it makes you think of it a little differently and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always worth a shot because you're right. You do hit a dry spot and you, you, you try to reignite something. Well, look, I, with that kind of doggedness and that kind of tenacity, as well as the, the insight, you know, that you're bringing to these particular cases, that is a hell of a story. I'm glad that you lived to tell the tale. And, you know, when I'm I read sorry the, it took so long. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's remarkable. I mean, it's as dramatic as anything that you've written about. And, you know, we get a lot of alleged boating accidents in the newspapers here down in Louisiana where, you know, folks conveniently fall off the back of a skiff, you know, oh, maybe yeah. an estranged ex-wife just kind of disappears in that way. Um, but in some cases, you know, you've, you're, you're giving me reason to kind of look differently at some of these stories and think, well, hell, maybe there was an actual accident there from time to time. ER, uh, I cannot wait to read your next book, which I am quite sure <laughs> will have some follow-ons, some addenda, some, some new material that's come to light based on, you know, what you have managed to, to dig up with that kind of uh, perseverance. So uh, please... Um, keep us posted and and uh, write that sucker as soon as possible because I know we all want to read it. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been E.R. Bills, author of Texas Oblivion, Mysterious Disappearances, Escapes, and Cover-Ups, published by the History Press. Join us next time for an interview with Julie Thompson, who tracked one of the greatest gangster escape artists of all time, Alvin Karpis. We'll see you then. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com.
Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.